Good morning. I am delighted uh, that you are here. Glad Dr. Moeller could make it. Uh, thank you, sir, for uh, coming in. Okay, I'm going to change back to what I was going to preach first. Now. So, uh, today I'm going to be in the book of uh, Philippians. I, I have, if I have any philosophy of preaching at all, it's that I preach to myself and assume it hits everybody else. We tend to have the same struggles, uh, the same struggles with sin and self. And so today I'm preaching primarily to me, but I'm going to let you overhear it and trust that the Lord might use it in your life. If I were to ask you to tell me what you as a follower of Christ want to be, how would you describe it? I'm not, I'm not asking what you want to do because really following Christ is primarily about being more than doing. So if I were to ask you, describe to me what you want to be, how would you describe your ideal self? Would you want to be blameless, live blamelessly? Would you want to be innocent of sin? A, a, a child of God living unspotted by sin in a wicked and perverse generation? Would you want to be a bright and shining gospel light in the darkness of the world around you? Faithfully holding the word of God, living in such a way that the people who have poured into you and sacrificed for you would be proud of you, not just in this life, but on the day of Christ, when you stand before him and give an account for all you did, would that be a worthy goal for you as a follower of Jesus? And what if I told you that the Holy Spirit has given us a very simple, simple does not mean easy, but a simple, profound way to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want to read to you from Philippians chapter two, uh, and we're going to focus on verses 14 through 18, but I, I want to read from verse one of chapter two. So we get really the full force of what Paul is saying uh, in Philippians. The way I approach Philippians is that there's sort of a nonlinear outline, four steps that Paul sort of repeats over and over. He's talking about, first of all, God's purpose for us, our lives. Secondly, the means God chooses to accomplish that purpose in our lives. Thirdly, then our response to the means God chooses to accomplish that purpose. And then fourthly, the results that we reap based on the response to the means God chooses to accomplish his purpose. And you just see that over and over, all the way in chapter one, when Paul says, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the praetorium and in all other places. What he's doing, he's talking about God's purpose for him in the furtherance of the gospel, but the means God chose to accomplish that purpose was unexpected. He put him in jail. So Paul then has to respond correctly. He sees this as God's means. And so he considers these his bonds, not in Caesar, but in Christ. And he preaches even to those praetorian guards. And as a result, the gospel is furthered. Those 
even of Caesar's household come to know the Lord. And you see this over and over and over throughout this epistle. He illustrates it most directly, even in the life of Jesus himself. Read with me beginning in verse one of chapter two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work or to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It, it astounds me that after urging the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, warning them that it's been given to them not just to believe, but also to suffer for Christ's sake, and then giving the model of Jesus' self-humiliation and condescension, and God, uh, God then exalting him as a result of his response, Paul then turns to our response. How do we respond to the circumstances of our life? How do we follow the example of our Savior who did not count his equality with God a thing to grasp, but humbled himself, emptied himself, took upon him the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? He simply gives us this 
stark, bare imperative. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That stuns me. I'm expecting him to give me some doctrinal standard or some great task. But it's really quite simple, isn't it? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The, the imperative is, is stark and simple. It, it begins with this intentionality. Do. You know, the Christian life is not passive. It's active. It's, we're always responding. We're responding to the salvation that God has given us. He has worked this salvation in us and we're responding by working it out with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling doesn't mean uh, that in we, we, we tremble and shake because we're afraid of messing it up. It, it simply means with respect, with seriousness. Uh, we, we welcome God's work in our lives and, and then we're taking what he's worked in and we're working it out as serious Christians not merely knowing the will of God, but doing the will of God, not merely believing in him, but acting on that belief. Do, that's intentionality. Then all things, here's consistency. We don't get much wiggle room there, do we? We're not given an exception clause. There's no exemption for an ox in the ditch or bad roommate or unappreciative students, or persnickety professors, or a lack of the respect you think you're entitled to. Well, this is all inclusive, comprehensive, across the board, universal, all things. Well, that's, that's hard for me. I can do some things without murmuring and disputing. You know what I struggle with? I struggle with the things that I see in advance are coming. And then when they happen, it, it like, it ticks me off a whole nother level. I knew that was going to happen. And I grumble and complain. I'm so happy to have four of my grandchildren here this morning. I got to eat with three of them last night. We went to cookout, uh, cookout, good burgers, good price, uh, big drinks. Uh, by the way, if you're a grandfather, big drinks at the table are your natural enemy. And I was sitting there, Jenny, our five-year-old, sitting beside me. And I could see she wasn't paying attention. She was reaching for stuff. And I said, hey, don't knock over your drink. Be careful with your drink. I said it maybe three times. And then the inevitable moment happened. <laughs> reaching for something, her sleeve caught the straw, and her styrofoam cup began to tip over. Lightning fast like I am. I lunged after her cup and caught it and my thumb punctured the wall <laughs> of her sweet syrupy orange drink that now is spurting all over the table. And so I did what every reasonable grandfather does. Grand, get some napkins or rags or something. And I sat there sort of helplessly while Tanya cleaned it up. 
I looked down at Jenny. I said, I told you that was going to happen. She said, it's your fault a little bit. I said, and because you tipped it over. Yeah, your thumb went through it. <laughs> Do all things. Tanya, knowing I was preaching this today, looked at me and she said, Do all things without murmuring or disputing. You know what that means? It means contentment. Without murmuring, murmuring. I don't often teach Greek words from the pulpit, but I think this one is worth knowing. You ready to learn one? Gongusmon. Gongusmon. Can you say that? Say it. Gongusmon. Say it. Say it again. All right. Say it five times. Say it. Gongusmon. 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 You hear that? That's what murmuring sounds like right there. You were doing it. It's an onomatopoeic word. Uh, it, it, it is intended to represent that low guttural sound that you hear when a crowd is murmuring. Gongusmon. Bidag, the great lexicon says, it's an utterance made in a low tone of voice behind the scenes. Yeah, it's easy to grumble, to murmur behind the scenes, isn't it? You know, spring on Southern's campus means the beaches are in bud, the dogwoods in bloom, the green hue of the bluegrass begins to emerge and stifling heat in the classrooms on unseasonably warm days until the conversion from heating to air conditioning happens right before the cold front comes back. <laughs> it's inevitable. Uh, and when that happens, and I, as a professor, walk into a room that's either too hot or too cold, it's easy to murmur, to grumble, to think somehow, ah, this level of thing, this isn't concluded, included in Paul's admonition. But he says, do all things without murmuring. Not only must we have contentment, but also agreeability. No disputing, being argumentative, disagreeable. You know, the opposite of complaint is gratitude and praise. And when we are so gripped by the humility and condescension of Christ in verses 5 through 11, when we're so convinced that a good God is working all things for our good, that you make a decision to live a life filled with gratitude and trusting obedience rather than a life of grumbling and arguing with God, that's when you find the most direct and shortest path toward working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, it, it, it's great that you are a proud post-millennial complementarian Calvinist 1689 Baptist who doesn't go to gay weddings. That's marvelous. But the question is, can you do all things without grumbling and disputing? I mean, that is the thing that produces something significant in your life. What is the result to responding to life like that? Well, that's 
where Paul says in verse 15, that you may be. And as bare as the imperative was, stark, clean, look how expansive and sprawling the result of fulfilling that imperative is. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. Wow, that's a pretty big result from a simple obedience to do all things without murmuring and disputing. Look at the result. First of all, purity. You're blameless and innocent. You know, sin is both the result and the cause of discontentment. I mean, all, all temptation really has at its root the suspicion that God is not good, that he's withholding something from you that it would be good for you to have, something that you want. And so when we think God has somehow not given us what we want or think we should have, we murmur. And often we reach outside of God's provision to lay hold of something that is not ours to have. If God is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure, why would you complain about that? Why would you be a murmur? You know, this word is used quite a bit. Uh, the noun or the verb form is used quite a bit in the New Testament. Jude connects complaining with sin. He quotes the book of Enoch. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Listen to what now Jude, after his quotation, here's his comment on it. These, these ungodly, these are grumblers malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Well, we tend to think of the horrible ungodly stuff as something done really outside the body. Jude says, no, it, it's about being a grumbler, a malcontent, not trusting in God. Here's another way to put it. Sin makes you surly. It's inconsistent and incompatible with the grace of God to be a surly Christian. A surly Christian is out of God's will. We have purity when we do all things without grumbling or complaining. Secondly, we have beauty without blemish. A discontented spirit leads to sin that causes the blemish of regret and shame. What if in our evangelical culture, grumbling and disputing was as abhorrent to us as compromising our convictions about the Bible or about sexuality? What if we saw how serious this really is. You know, a life filled with trust and praise and gratitude is distinctly beautiful. And if sanctification is progressive, if the Holy Spirit is 
ever making us look more like our Savior, shouldn't we grow kinder, gentler, more loving, sweeter, more content, less grumbling as we age? And shouldn't Christian leaders be more delightful to be around, more encouraging, more pleasant? Shouldn't Christian marriages be the best, the most beautiful displays of love on the planet? Shouldn't husbands in the service of Christ be the most wonderful husbands who bring joy into their homes, whose, whose wives say, man, I love being married to that guy. He never gripes or complains. Well, that's a beautiful life. It's a beautiful marriage. It brings purity, beauty, and distinction because he says we stand out amid a crooked generation. A, a Christian life distinguishes itself from the world. I mean, what does the world do? Well, the world is filled with grumbling and complaining. The perpetual victimhood is the way of the world. Discontent with the very idea of marriage, of gender, of sexuality, the family, the social order, all that is rebellion against what God has given and it has no place in the life of a believer, but neither does grumbling. I mean, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that uh, Dr. Aiken read as our call to worship, Paul uses the Exodus as his text. And at the end of that, sharing the story of the Israelites coming up out of Egypt, and he tells that even though all of them had these signs, I mean, they all had these blessings. They were baptized into Moses in the sea in the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they all ate that spiritual food, and they all drank from that rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. All, 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 all. But with the majority of them, God was not well pleased, and he scattered them in the wilderness. So therefore, don't desire evil like they did. What are the four things Paul says? He says, okay, don't be idolaters, don't be adulterers, don't tempt Christ, and don't murmur. It's the great sin of Israel, the murmuring. Moses got full of their murmuring. God got ticked off at their murmuring. And when we participate in that spirit, we're, we're being like the world. We're not distinguishing ourselves. But we have the distinction in a crooked generation to be different. And fourth, our witness. He says, among whom you shine as lights. God has delivered you from the world. So that stark difference in you and the way you live and the way you talk and the praise and the gratitude that fills your life should be a witness to the world. Are we not awestruck when we see people who suffer greatly and yet they maintain such a pleasant spirit? Dr. Aiken referred to my recent uh, uh, end of my tenure after 20 years at, at Buck Run. And I was honored in so many ways and on my last day as pastor there on January the 28th, it was such a blessing. Uh, so many of my colleagues here, uh, some of you students came to Buck Run and it was glorious. And everyone who came in those final weeks, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Moeller came one Sunday and honored me. And all of that meant so much to me, but there's one person who really stood out to me. 
On Sunday, there was a 15-year-old girl from Versailles, been a part of Buck Run uh, from her childhood. And last year, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And it has caused so many other complications in her life. She's had tumors on her skull, tumors on her lumbar. She's now completely lost the use of both of her legs. Uh, it, just, I, I, I don't even dare to describe to you what this poor teenage girl has been through, the indignities and the loss of agency. And uh, she had come home from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital the week before. And on the morning of January 28th, she told her grandparents, I must go to church today for Dr. York's last day. I didn't see her there during the service, and I'm sort of glad about that. But when the service was concluded and people were standing around saying the kindest things, I saw the crowd part in a wheelchair being pushed down the aisle, and there was Anaya. And I had a small idea of what it took for her to be there that day. And I will never forget it. It was as glorious a gift as anyone could give to me. When you are suffering and you have circumstances in your life you didn't ask for, you don't want, but you recognize that a sovereign God who gave his son for you is working in your life to will and to do his good pleasure. And you respond with trust and gratitude and hope and obedience and joy. You show the fruit of the spirit and you do not grumble, murmur, gripe, complain. You don't dispute with God and argue with him that he's not good to you. Instead, your heart is filled with love and a desire just to honor him. God who sees your suffering, your circumstances, and hears your praise and your joy. He's honored by that. It's a gift a sacrifice of praise to him. And you shine as lights in the world. The world sees that you respond to difficulty and suffering very differently than they do. When your love for the Lord is so great that it, it shines even in your hurt, you shine as a light in this dark world and a godly attitude invites others to know him. And this yields tenacity. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, not complaining about or disputing with the word of God, but loving the word. Determination to be content yields determination in every area of your life. Can you name one grumbler in the Bible who was also known for believing God? I mean, look up the word gongusmon. Look up the, the noun or the verb form, either one, you'll find it used for the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the grace of Jesus. 
The Jews grumbled because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. The Israelites grumbled because they were tired of the manna God sent from heaven. And so God scattered them. And yet Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because he humbled himself, even to the point of death, because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Paul says, this is what I want to see in you. That you trust God with your circumstances. You work out that salvation with fear and trembling by not griping and grumbling. And he said, this is how I know that I did not run or labor in vain. You see, this is what gives our Christian life worth. How can the people who have invested in you know that their investment is getting a return? I mean, if, if, there are people who sacrifice for you to be here. And if you just go around all the time griping and grumbling about being here, how hard it is or how you don't like this or that or the rooms being too warm or too cold, if, if you just go around griping and grumbling, does it, does it show gratitude for that investment in you? Our lives add value, meaning, and reward to others. Paul does not fear his life being poured out as a drink offering, but he says he doesn't want it to have been poured out in vain. He wants to be proud on the day of Christ Jesus when they when those Philippians are rewarded for their faithfulness. Uh, you know, there's just something about our grumbling that says to God, we're not grateful. We, we are in fact sitting in judgment on the way he has worked his salvation in us. Uh, I have two sons, Seth is here today. My other son, Michael, pastors in Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, rearing them was absolute joy and delight. It wasn't without its challenges. And uh, I remember one time when uh, Michael was probably about 13, Seth was about 11. And we didn't have a lot back then, but we went to, down in Western Kentucky, there's a restaurant called Patty's. And they, they serve these big, thick pork chops. And we had saved up to be able to go to Patty's. We went down there, it was on a hot August day. We got there, it was like an hour and a half wait to get seated. Well, okay, we, we can do this. And they had putt-putt out, outside. You could play putt-putt while you waited. Hey, you guys wanna play putt-putt? Seth was still 11, an 11 year old good for anything. Michael was 13, a 13 year old doesn't even like what he likes. <laughs> Michael's like, I don't wanna play putt-putt. Oh, okay. Then we stood around in the heat for an hour and a half and you know, nothing was good enough. He, Michael wasn't satisfied with anything. And uh, finally we got seated. And when we sat down at the table, man, we were ready. We're in air conditioning now, it's cool. And I can't wait to get my pork chops. Now, we knew all along we were gonna get pork chops, but my precious wife, Tanya, has this routine. She does it without fail. Uh, when we sit down at a restaurant, we look at the menu and she always asks, without exception, what are you gonna get? And I tell her what I'm gonna get. And then she always responds, did you see the blank? 
And she always suggests that there's something else on the menu. Did you notice it? Now, she's not, there's no push. She's not trying to get me to get it. She, out of the kindness of her heart, just wants to maximize my joy. She wants to make sure I saw everything on the menu and then I don't later go, what? I didn't see that. I didn't get that. This is her motive. And I got used to it a long time ago. I see it with the kind intention that it has. And uh, I love it. It endears me to her. But a 13-year-old boy had had enough of it that day. And and she said, uh, what are you going to get? And Michael said, it doesn't matter what I'm going to get. That's none of your business. The long arm of the law reached across the table. I, I mean, I'd had enough. I pulled him up, took him outside. We had a minivan then and we got in the minivan and I shut the door so there'd be no witnesses. And I did not turn it on, no air conditioning. I mean, it was, it, it, it was like, you know, a, a, a box somewhere in the Middle East where you're interrogating prisoners. And I looked at him and I said, do you know what your problem is? You think I won't kill you. (laughs) I make another one just like you. And uh, I said, look, that's not just your mother you talk to like that. That's my wife. Do you think I'd let anybody else talk to my wife like that? He went, no, sir. I said, you think I'm going to let a pipsqueak like you talk to my wife like that? (laughs) He said, no, sir. I said, you're exactly right. Now, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go back in there and we're going to enjoy our pork chops. And you're going to keep a smile on your face and you're going to speak kindly to your mother. And we're going to get over this because I want grandchildren one day. (laughs) And the only way you're going to live long enough for that to happen is you don't repeat this. Yes, sir. It was like he got over his adolescence in one afternoon. (laughs) Look, how do you think your grumbling lands on God's ears. When a sovereign God has given his only son for you and you're ungrateful and you murmur and complain. See, the decision to be content is the most significant response to the gospel. And I warn you, it's a constant battle. It's a daily battle. Yesterday morning, Dr. Vickers gave his faculty address. It was a brilliant discussion of Luther's three rules for becoming a theologian, uh, an interpreter of Holy Scripture. Uh, he, He talked about the three things we combine, prayer, meditation, and then the agonizing struggle, the Latin word tentatio. And when he concluded that brilliant lecture, I was sitting there still mulling over it in my mind, thinking about it, meditating on. It was just really great. Dr. Moeller was making some remarks. And then 
Dr. Moeller called Dr. Vickers back up and he presented him with a lovely crystal paperweight of the seminary seal. And I sat there thinking, hey, when I gave my faculty address, I didn't get one of those. What is that? What is that? Why on earth did that even occur to me? Why does that matter? I don't even want that thing on my desk, but I, <laughs> but I felt the absence of, hey, he got something I didn't get. Listen, if Jesus really is enough, satisfaction is the proper disposition for a believer. And if the Lord gives something to someone else that he does not give to me, hallelujah, praise the Lord. My heavenly father will deny me no good thing. And I live in that and I rest in that. And you say, I, I struggle with that. That's right, me too. That's why I need the mind of Christ. And he says in verse five of chapter two, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. It's available to you. His mind is a mind of humility and a willingness to be obedient unto death, a mind that looks on the, the things of others, not just on the thing of self. Can we say, Jesus, thank you for loving me, saving me, sustaining me, graciously giving me another day of life in which to serve you. But hey, you didn't give me that guy's gifts or that big church or that woman's voice or that professor's book contracts. Let our hearts be so filled with the grace of Christ and our minds so possessed of his mind that we really live satisfied in him without murmuring or disputing. Because if we're not satisfied in Christ, can we say we really know him? Father, my prayer is that we might content ourselves in you. That we might learn that great truth. Jesus is enough. Keep our lips from sinning against you by murmuring or disputing so that we might truly shine as lights in this dark world, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We pray in the name above every name, the name at which every knee will bow, the name of Jesus, who is Lord, amen.